0: We began in June in this series which we have titled This We Believe as we walk through our doctrinal statement here at Countryside. If you have been with us on this journey, you have realized that while we have not treated each subject exhaustively, we have touched upon important or foundational elements within each doctrine that we have looked at, enough to be able for us to develop a basic understanding of the doctrine and at the same time leave us uh, with a desire to explore the topic further. And Today we come uh, together to consider the doctrine of last things, eschatology as it is commonly called. Eschatos meaning last and logos meaning speech or discourse. So this is a speech or discourse about the last things. Uh, the pitfalls with thinking about the last things can be many though On the one hand, on the one extreme, you can be so occupied with the last things that it just consumes you and everything that you do, that you fail to live in the present. On the other extreme, and because these things are in the future, you just don't think you should form a firm opinion about these things or you refuse to take a position on certain things. You could also fall into another pitfall, and that is you merely look at these things to satisfy your curiosity but don't apply the implications that follow from studying last things. Well, we won't fall into that particular pitfall. And so that we think, why then should we study eschatology? Well, the primary reason for we want to study about last things is because the Bible teaches about last things. Students of the Bible and scholars tell us that over 25% of the Bible is prophetical in nature. That is 25%. If your Bible has 1,000 pages, which is typical average, 250 pages have to do with prophecy. Here's how Kenneth Boa and Bruce Wilkinson introduced the Bible in their book, Talk Through the Bible. They say, Bible's proclamations are unique. Over a quarter of the Bible was prophetic at the time that it was written. And these prophecies stand alone in their graphic detail, accuracy, and scope. Not only we have prophecy in the scriptures, but they're also accurate and they are detailed in many instances. All the things, though, the Bible teaches are important. All things that the Bible teaches are important. However, there are some things that the Bible teaches that takes a higher priority in comparison to other things. The doctrine that we're going to learn today, eschatology, in comparison to say the doctrine of salvation or soteriology, takes a lower priority. And the reason I say that is this. You know, you can afford to be wrong in certain areas when it comes to eschatology, and you will still spend eternity with God. But if you were to get something wrong as regards to salvation, how you can be saved, how you can be right with God, if you go wrong there, your eternity is at stake. We have many in our church who don't fully agree with our doctrinal statement when it comes to this particular doctrine, but they are still members here because we agree that there are certain doctrines that take higher priority. So they've committed to becoming members and they have submitted themselves to the leadership of the church So I do admit up front that there are individuals, perhaps some even sitting here, who may not fully agree with everything that our doctrinal statement mentions about this particular doctrine. With that as a background, uh, let me give you a general order of events when it comes to eschatology. You remember when we studied salvation, we studied order salutis, or the order of salvation. Today we come to order eschatos, which is the order of last Things. Uh, this is typically the outline, the structure, the order in which we will look at each of these individual events. Death, rapture, tribulation, which the Bible says will last for seven years, the second coming of Christ, the millennium, which is the thousand rule of Christ, thousand year rule of Christ, the great white throne judgment, and then followed by the eternal state. What I plan to do is cover each of these very briefly as we consider what is that event and the different elements within that particular event enough for us to lay a foundation so that it gives us some basics upon which we can study further with that let's begin with the first event which is death now this could be the next event in our life or it could be the rapture and we will talk about the rapture in a moment but let's assume that this is the next event in our Life. What does it particularly, what does it mean to die? Well, it's the cessation of the life of the body. That is the stopping. A separation of the immaterial soul from our physical body. That's what death is. It's the separation of the soul from the material body. In James chapter 2 verse 26, James writes, For just as the body without the spirit is dead... So also faith without works is dead. Clearly implying that there is a separation that takes place at death between the material and the immaterial part of who we are. It it is described in many ways in general. We say an individual died or passed away. Uh, In British English, you would say he expired. Uh, So I had to get used to passing away instead of expiring. The Bible also describes someone dying as falling asleep. Remember, in terms, uh, uh, remember the story of Lazarus? Uh, it is said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go so that I may awaken him out of the sleep. The Bible also describes dying as being torn down. Even as it describes our body as the outer tent or the house Remember Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, he says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, that is, if we die, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And so death is described in various ways. It is an event that is certainly uncertain. Uncertain about when you will die, but certain that you will die die. And I will one day die. How did death enter into this world as we look at the reasons? Well the Bible describes death as a result of sin. If you've grown up in the church Romans 6:23 should be very familiar to you for the wages of sin is death. The whole world is subject to death because all of us have sinned. Romans 5.12, Paul writes, by one man, sin entered the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. In Genesis 2.17, you'll remember our Lord's warning to Adam that the penalty of disobedience would be death. You will surely die, Adam. When Adam disobeyed, he experienced immediate spiritual death. A separation from his relationship with God. Therefore, he felt guilty. Remember, when the Lord was walking through the garden, he, hid, he tried to hide himself, Adam did, behind the trees. And that is what caused him to hide because there was an immediate separation from his relationship with God. And then later on, as you know, in Genesis 5, he also experienced physical death. And so, death came into this world because of sin. What is sin? In very simple terms, it is to miss the mark. It is to miss the mark that God has for us. It is to do things God has told you not to do. And it is not to do things God has told you to do. That is the reason for death. And then as we think thirdly of the destiny. The destiny of two groups of people. The Bible only recognizes two groups of people. One... Who is a believer who is in a right relationship with God, and the other an unbeliever who is not in a right relationship with God? What is the destiny of the believer after death? Well, for the redeemed, the separation will continue until rapture, an event that we will consider next. But turn in your Bibles to First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Here Paul writes in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. He's instructing them about those who have already died so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Notice he does not say you will never grieve, but your grieving is not going to be similar to the ones who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep In Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, we do mourn, we do grieve when fellow believers pass away or expire, but we don't grieve like those who have no hope. And then until the rapture takes place, the soul of the believer is in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul again says in Second Corinthians 5, 8, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So it means that if you're absent in the body, your presence is with the Lord. What about unbelievers? As regards to unbelievers, those who are unredeemed, their souls are kept under punishment until what the Bible calls as a second resurrection, which is to say an event that takes place at the end of tribulation. I use these words, but as you go through the lesson, you will begin to make the connection. At the end of the tribulation, their soul and body will be united. In John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, John writes, uh, quoting our Lord, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And at this time, after their soul and bodies are united, then they will appear before the great white throne judgment, again mentioned in Revelation, a judgment for the unredeemed or unbelievers. Believers are not part of that particular judgment. And after this judgment, the text goes on to say their names are not found in the book of life, and so they will be cast into hell or the lake of fire for eternity. That is their eternal destination You know, death is, is a sobering reality. I'm sure each one of us knows someone who has died. It's not an illusion. It's not make-believe. No, it is, it is real. It's not the end. Rather, it is a translation. If you are a follower of Christ, you are translated from this life to a life with our Lord Jesus Christ. But it is certain. You know, going by the average age... None of us will be here on this earth in another 75 years. When was the last time you thought about death? Your death. Hebrews 9.27 Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once. And after this comes judgment. Death. Secondly, we have the rapture. Mentioned in a number of places, but the word itself is used only in one place it's a text that we've already read it's in 1st Thessalonians 4:17 uh, the word actually comes from a latin word which means uh, which is rapio which means to snatch or to seize or to remove by force from one place to another this is an event in the history of this world in the in, in 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 the events that are coming up in the world where believers or the church will be raptured or will be seized or will be snatched. The Hebrew, the Greek word is harpazo means the same thing, to seize or to catch up. Again, it's only mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, but it is also referred to in a few other places. It's the verse in First Thessalonians, it says, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. It's an it's a act which is, which is displaying that we will not be here on the earth, but will be taken up. Um, First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul refers to this particular event, and he says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed, referring to the rapture. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable and we will be changed. It's an event that takes place within a matter of few seconds. Rapture. Now there are three different views even amongst believers about when this event will take place. When will the Lord rapture his people? These all are based on when the tribulation takes place. So we have a few uh, thoughts on that. There is something called as pre-trib which is the fact that before the tribulation, mid-trib, that is during the tribulation, and then post-trib, that is after the tribulation. Uh, here, if you've read our doctrinal statement, if you have the booklets with you, you know that we, uh, we believe in the pre-trib. Why do we do that? Well, two reasons that I want to share with you. Uh, for the first reason is that both the mid-trib and the post-trib Undermine the imminency of Christ's return. What do I mean by that? The word imminent means likely to happen at any moment, something that is impending. When we speak of the imminence of Christ's return, we mean that he could come back at any moment. There's nothing more in a biblical prophecy that needs to happen before he comes. And both mid trip and post trip undermine the imminency of Christ's return but there's another reason that we do hold to this both the mid trip and the post trip imply that believers will face the wrath of god in some measure and we know that the bible teaches that the believers those who have placed their trust in christ will not face the wrath of god how do we know that well revelation 3:10 is one place uh, let me read that but in the meantime you could turn to romans chapter 5 verse 9 In Revelation 3.10, John records this. He says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. And then in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, if you're there already, Paul says this, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And so believers will not face the wrath of God. And we also believe in the imminency of Christ's return. All of that to say, we believe the Bible teaches that if you're a follower of Christ, that you will not face tribulation, and neither will you face the eternal wrath of God. And that's as far as timing is concerned. Our third event is the tribulation. Tribulation. Well, what is it? Well, notice it's not tribulations, plural. Which we use for difficult times in our life or trials, uh, this is the word tribulation. And it refers to the seven year period in which righteous judgments of God will be poured out on the unbelieving world. Uh, The word tribulation comes from the Greek word thilipsis. Uh, This word really means uh, pressing, Uh, it means to crush, it means to squash. It means to compress or squeeze in. It is the word that was used when olives were crushed to draw olive oil from the olives. Also, it's the same word that is used to describe grape juice being drawn from grapes that were crushed. So you can visualize that as we think of tribulation. It's a strong term, it doesn't mean minor inconveniences, but it means real hardships. Uh, This will be an intense uh, period and a scale that is unforeseen in terms of the tribulation. Uh, Matthew 24, 21, our Lord says, For then there will be a great tribulation, uh, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. How intense is this? Well, the different ways in which the Bible describes tribulation. Uh, The period is compared to birth pains. Uh, They are intense. Uh, This is described as the day of trouble. uh, Or of time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, This period is described as dark and gloomy. uh, In Joel and Zephaniah. It's also described as uh, the day of punishment. Or the day of vengeance. The day of judgment. The day of the Lord's anger. Uh, It's a period where the slide into utter depravity of man. Will be at its lowest. And God's judgment will be in accordance to that depravity of man. In terms of timeline, this is a seven-year period with some sort of a significant event right in the middle of these seven years. How do we know that? Well, turn if you're still in Romans, turn to Revelation chapter 11. Notice verse 2. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations. For they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. If you go down to Revelation 13, Verse five, notice what it says. There was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. What is 42 months? It's three and a half years. So three and a half years and three and a half years. You have seven years that this period is talking about. Uh, What event happens in the middle of that particular period? Second well, Thessalonians and the book of Daniel mentions that. Uh, let me just read Second Thessalonians chapter 2 Paul writes, let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Which is to say that that first three and a half years will be a time of trial and a difficult period. But the last three and a half years is going to be even more difficult. And both those periods is going to be pierced by this particular individual that will come, who is called as the man of lawlessness. Why do we have the tribulation? What are some of the reasons? Well, at least two that we can think of. First of all, to reclaim the world from Satan. In 1 John 5:19, we are told, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's what the Apostle John writes. Our Lord says in John 12, 31, Now judgment is upon this world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now this is Satan, who is called God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4 by, by Paul. And so this particular period is to reclaim the world from Satan. But secondly, it is also to punish those who are alive and reject Christ. Revelation 6.16 says, And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? But I also think, I don't have it here on the slides, that it gives a preview of the final judgment that is to come, which will take place at the end Who is involved? There are certain individuals that are mentioned in this particular period that are prominent. There's, first of all, uh, the beast. Uh, This is the political leader, the military leader of the final world empire. He would be one that is dominated and controlled by Satan. Not only do we have the beast, we also have the false prophet. This is the religious and spiritual leader of the final world mentioned in Revelation 13. And then finally, we have the dragon. Himself, described as the vicious one who destroys. the Bible identifies this in Revelation 12:9 as the devil or Satan. Now, finally, as we think of the tribulation, how will this be carried out? How will this be carried out? That is what Revelation chapter six to chapter 18, covers for us, and then there are other few verses scattered throughout the scriptures. Now, there are three kinds of judgments that are mentioned. We're not going to take time to go into detail into each one of them. But there are the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. As you think of these judgments, one follows the other. If you've seen what is generally known as the Russian dolls or the babushka dolls, it's one doll contained in the other one. Think of these judgments in those ways. The seven seals, I've mentioned the reference there. It's the destruction of the false prophet and the Antichrist. Uh, On a worldwide scale, there will be a scarcity of food. There will be earthquakes and pestilence during this time. There will be cosmic darkness and disasters that will mark this kind of judgment. Then there are seven trumpets. Uh, Vegetation as it exists in the world at that time will be completely burned. Uh, Sea life will be destroyed. Fresh water would be made bitter. A demonic locusts and deadly plagues will inhabit majority of the world at that time. Then there is seven bowls. In this particular one, individuals will be uh, going through tribulation. There will be sores that they will have. Seas will become blood. Fresh water will become blood. Sun will scorch men. Darkness and pain will be prevalent throughout the earth. A terrible... Terrible time. All of this will be in preparation for the last battle. Which the Bible describes in Revelation 19. As the battle of Armageddon. Or the literal word Armageddon. Which means the Mount of Megiddo. Has become synonymous with the future battle. In which God will intervene and destroy the enemies of the Antichrist. As mentioned in Revelation 16 and 19. There will be a multitude of people that will be engaged in this battle as of all the nations as they gather together to fight against the Lord Jesus Christ. As believers, all of us would be spared of being in this time period. The tribulation. This then is the tribulation as the scriptures describe it. A preview, if you will, Of the ultimate and final judgment. To come. That brings us to the fourth event. And that is the second coming. Of Christ. What is the second coming of Christ? Well this is an event. Where Christ returns to the earth. With his saints to defeat. His enemies. And establish his kingdom. Revelation 20. Refers to this. While rapture is an event. That takes place before the tribulation. The second coming Is an event that takes place after the tribulation. At the rapture. Remember Christ comes in the air. For his saints. And he comes to take the saints to heaven. While in his second coming. He comes to the earth to reign. Revelation 19 is actually a prelude. To the second coming of Christ. A passage through which our pastor is actually going through. Last Sunday was the first time. He began to teach on that passage a wonderful reminder of things that will take place in heaven. If you were to read Revelation 19, it begins with a scene in heaven. What's going on in heaven? Praise and worship for a number of reasons. For the salvation of God's people, for justice for God's enemies. uh, Because God's sovereignty will be over his entire universe. And there will be communion between the Lord and his bride. All of those things are mentioned in Revelation 19. And then Christ will come on a white horse to reign over the earth for a thousand years. The Bible describes that as a millennium. What a difference between his first coming and his second coming. In his first coming, he came as a savior of the world almost 2,000 years back. But in his second coming, he comes as a judge of the world. In his first coming, Christ came to die. In his second coming, Jesus Christ will come to rule and to reign. The first coming of Christ is a matter of history, but the second coming is a matter of prophecy. The first coming has already happened. The second coming, God's word tells us, will happen. Uh, Christ came to be the savior of sinners in his first coming, Christ the King will come to reign in his second coming. Christ came to be man's savior in his first coming. Christ will come as man's judge in his second coming. Christ came to be on earth as a newborn baby in his first coming. Christ will come as a conquering warrior in his second coming. Christ came with meekness in his first coming, seated on a or riding on a donkey. But in his second coming, Christ will come with power, riding on a white horse. Christ came to bring peace to the human heart in the first coming. In the second coming, Christ will come to bring peace to the entire world. When Christ came the first time, the government was on the shoulders of men. Remember Herod and Pilate and other Roman governors and the emperor that ruled But when Christ comes the second time, the government will be upon his shoulders. Romans 9, 6, and 7. What a wonderful reality to look forward to as we look forward to the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The second coming of Christ then is followed by a thousand year rule called generally as the millennium. Millennium. What does it mean it means a thousand, literal thousand-year rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is literal. We want to emphasize that. Within the order of the last events, this has been an issue that is highly debated. And all the three views that are predominant as, considered to, uh, as regards to the millennium are considered to be orthodox evangelical options. There's the ermel view that says that there will be no literal thousand-year kingdom but it's just uh, allegorizing of the number. It's a symbolic number. It's not a literal number, these millennialists would say. That would be a similar position of the postmillennialists. They believe that we are right now living in the thousand-year rule. But the premillennial view, which is what we hold to here, is the view that Christ's second coming will occur to his millennial kingdom. And this will be followed by a literal thousand-year rule. Now, when we say that it's a literal kingdom, it's a consistent application of the biblical way of interpreting things, which is literal, grammatical, historical method. You can't apply that view to Old Testament, and then when you come to Revelation 19, 20, 21, and 22, suddenly get rid of that framework and throw that out of the window as you look at Revelation 20. A number of times, John mentions the word, Thousand year rule. If you are in fact still in Revelation, go down to Revelation 20. First, in verse 2, it tells us what God intends to do with Satan. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. And bound him for a thousand years. Notice verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life. Until the thousand years were complete. This is the first resurrection. And when the thousand years are completed. Verse 7. Satan will be released from his prison. While Satan is being held captive. What is happening on the earth? Christ is reigning on the earth. What are some characteristics. As we think of the thousand year rule. It will be something that will be inhabited by all the resurrected and glorified believers. So it will include Jews and Gentiles, male and female. During this period, as I just read for us, Satan will be bound and be rendered powerless. And then Jesus will reign as king in his kingdom. In Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, Isaiah records this prophecy for us as he says, For unto us a child Uh, for, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The millennial. Daniel 7.14 mentions the same thing. And to him was given dominion. Glory and kingdom. That all the peoples and nations and men. Of every language and tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus our Lord and King. Will reign through his saints. That is you. And me. In Second Timothy 2 verse 12. Paul writes. If we endure. We will also reign with him. If we deny him. He will also deny. He also will deny us. There will be spiritual blessings. As a part of this kingdom. There will be ethical blessings. There will be social blessings. There will be physical blessings. And there will be political blessings. You and I. Will reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. That leads us to the sixth event, the judgments. The judgments. I've divided this into two sections because both the believers and the unbelievers will be judged. Let's begin with the believers, an event that is mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5.10. This is also called the Bema Seat seat Judgment. Uh, The Bema was an elevated platform in ancient cities where victorious athletes receive their crowns. Even now, as you look at Olympics or other events that take place on a world stage, or even normal athletic events, you have people who are a little elevated so that they can be honored. That was the elevated platform. But this was also a platform that was connected with judgments or legal decisions that were made. And that is what Paul has in mind. This is a judgment And judgment in 2 Corinthians 5.10 has to do with believers. You might say, believers? Yes, that is true. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes, also mentioned in Romans 14.10, he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. As regards to timing, this will be after the rapture but before the second coming. We will not be judged on anything that we did prior to our conversion. Some of you will say praise the Lord as we've come, some of us have come from very difficult sinful background. All of us have come from sinful backgrounds. And what, what, what this says is we will not be held for those sins. Romans 8, 8 verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Hebrews 10, 17, it says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So what then will we be judged on as believers? Well, at least three things. Uh, first of all would be our works. Our works. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Notice what Paul writes there. He says, now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. And this is how we know he's talking about believers. He says, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. In Matthew chapter 10 verse 42 it says, And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Believers, if you're a follower of Christ, your actions will be judged. You cannot simply say to yourself, I'm a believer now, so it doesn't matter what I do. No, it matters. If you read Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, it tells you that even the works that we would do are ordained by our God. Our works then will be judged. But secondly, our words will be judged as well. Don't be flippant with your words is the instruction there. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, but I tell you, That every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. How many times do we say things and then we say, well, I did not really mean it. That's what's not what I was really thinking. Our Lord would say to you, no, that's exactly what you were thinking. But what goes in is not bad. What comes out of your mouth is bad and sinful. Because that's what you were thinking and reflecting on. And so if we take any application from this is be careful with what you say. Be careful with what you write. Thirdly, we will be judged on our motives. Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness, that is things we think are motives of our heart, and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. We will be judged for our works, words, and motives. Not only will we be judged, we will also receive rewards. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.14, a verse that I just read, if any man's work on which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. Bible frequently mentions about certain crowns, In fact, the the grammar that is structured there, it's translated the crown of rejoicing. Rather, the better translation would be the crown that is rejoicing. The crown that is life. The crown that is righteousness. The crown that is glory. Those are the crowns you and I will receive as a result of our judgment. And what do we do with those crowns? If you read uh, Revelation 4, we see crowns that are laid at our savior's feet it's because of him that if any good we were able to do or think that we can credit it to him ultimately as we seek to worship him that is as regards to believers but what about unbelievers unbelievers judgment is commonly known in the scriptures as the great white throne judgment what is it it's essentially uh done to declare the glory of God in that he is eventually seen to be just and righteous and gracious and merciful. The chronology in Revelation places this judgment after the millennium but before the new heaven and the new earth. If you're still in Revelation go to chapter 20. notice verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it And the death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. As an unbeliever, that is the eternal destiny that you can look forward to. In fact, in the scriptures, no judgment is mentioned after this judgment. Therefore, we can take this as the final judgment. Who is judged? Well, Jude 6 tells us that fallen angels are also judged. And then secondly, as we just read, the unbelieving dead and all unbelieving sinners will be judged. What is the standard according to which they will be judged? Well, they will be judged according to the law of God. The books were opened, it says, and those whose name was not found in the book of life, they were then cast into or thrown into the lake of fire. This is a just judgment, a public judgment. This is an unchangeable and eternal judgment. Therefore, if you're a follower of Christ, you're sharing the gospel with someone, the most loving thing you can do is tell them about their eternal destiny. Second death, as John describes it here. Judgments. Seventhly and finally, the eternal state. The eternal state. What is the eternal state? Well, many people think of eternity, that it has to do with believers having wings like angels flying around in heaven. That is not what the Bible teaches we will do. Uh, This phrase, new heavens and new earth, is not uh, just a New Testament phrase. In fact, it comes from the Old Testament. It was mentioned in Isaiah 65. Here's what Isaiah records for us. In verse 17, he says, For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Repeat it again in Isaiah 66. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure as well. And then most famously used in Revelation, but also mentioned in Second Peter. If you were a part of the retreat, this is one of the verses that Chaz read for us. In verse 13 in Second Peter 3, Peter writes, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. What happens immediately before this is verse 10. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and the works, its works will be burnt up. Everything that you see right now will ultimately be burned up and a new heaven and a new earth established. What are some characteristics of the new heaven and new earth Well it will be marked by the presence of God. Psalm 16 verse 11, Psalmist writes you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Not only that, heaven is or the new heavens and the new earth is a real place. The Lord says this and this is connected with the rapture but but gives us a glimpse of the reality of these two destinations. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, if I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. We're given a glimpse, the initial vision of this new heaven and a new earth in Revelation 21 and 22. Why don't we turn there as we come to the end of our time together. Notice Revelation 21. In verse 2 it says a city that is coming down from heaven, Jerusalem. God will dwell or manifest his presence among his people on this new earth forever. Verse 3. Uh, There is an absolute certainty of this place as you look at verse 5 to verse 8. It's absolutely certain based on the very character of God. He is faithful and true. He is the source and end of all things. And then there are things that won't be in heaven. There are some things that won't be in heaven. What won't be in heaven is that there will be no temple. Because we will be in the presence of God himself. What is a temple? A temple. A temple is a place where man meets with God. And if we are in the presence of God himself, there is no need for a temple. Not only that, there won't be any need for electricity or a cosmic light source such as sun or the moon because God's glory in its brilliance will be enough. Notice verse 23 and 24. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it for the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp. Is the lamb. What else marks this new heaven and new earth? There will be no danger. Verse 25 and 26. No evil. Verse 27. No needs. Chapter 22. Verse 1 and 2. No curse. No separation. We will have glorified bodies. If you were to explore that. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 42 to 44. It says an imperishable body. It's something that will be raised in glory. It's a spiritual body, says Paul. And what will we be doing as believers? We will be worshipping our great God. We will be serving. We will be reigning with our great God. And we will be living perfect human lives. One without sin. The kind of lives that God always created you and me to live. What a glorious reality That is, what a fitting transition and climax to God's plan and purposes for the world in general, for the believer in particular. As we come to our series on a doctrinal statement, what are some things that we can take away from these few weeks that we've spent together? Uh, First of all, there's an imperative to trust in Christ. If you're here and if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, the Bible tells us that today is the day of salvation. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. If you have any questions about where you stand in regards to your eternal destiny, we would love to speak with you. but The Bible commands us to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as our only hope to be right with this holy God. Not only that, there's an impetus to holy living. You don't have to turn there. In 2 Peter 3, 11 to 14, Peter writes these, these things. He says, since all of these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens, he says, will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. We are unashamedly looking forward to the coming of our Lord and Savior. And so it encourages us to live holy lives today. Not only that, there's an incentive to finish our race well. We want to say with Paul, wouldn't we? I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me a crown that is righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but all, but also to all who have loved his appearing. As a believer, you're longing for the Lord to come back. Hebrews 12:1. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Make the most of your time. Uh, Chaz introduced us to the seventy resolutions, the book that he brought with him. And one of the two one or two of the resolutions that stood out for me personally is this one, which Uh, Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Edwards says I will make the most of every moment of my life and secondly he says I will live every hour as though it is my last hour on this earth we want to finish our race well I don't know how many years you have I don't know how many years I have but what a great incentive as we look forward to what lies ahead to finish our race well Not only that, there's an inspiration to study God's word well. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. Applies to men and women. Those who are involved in teaching and those who are not involved in teaching. We want to be diligent student of God's word. And then finally, an impulse to live an evangelistic life. We live and die by our calendars that we have on our phones or on our computers or whatever devices that we have. I wonder what will happen if you kept space on your calendar for an unexpected meeting with someone every day. It's a burden to share the gospel. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of this age. You will be my witnesses, our Lord would say to his immediate disciples in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. May the Lord give us strength as we long for his coming, unashamedly looking forward, loving his appearing, as we look to see him one day face to face. Until then, Let us continue to run the race and finish well. Lord, we thank you for our time together even tonight. Thank you for all these men and women who are present here today. Thank you for the encouragement from your word. Lord, use us for your glory. Help us be well grounded in your word. I pray for the small group discussion time. I pray that you would be exalted and honored through everything. In Jesus' precious and worthy name I pray. Amen.